Well, good morning. Hey, if I've never met you, my name is Jeffrey, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm excited about this morning. Uh, online campus, we love that you're there. I, uh, I was out last week. Uh, I was out of town, and I got to be a part of the online campus, and it was fun. I don't always get to do that because, you know, usually I'm working on Sunday morning, like up here and doing stuff. And so I got to be a part of the online campus. It was awesome. Actually, there's a whole team of serve team that that is the way they serve in our church. And, and we've got a lady on there named Opal. And I got to watch Opal last week, just see people say they had a prayer request and pray for them and encourage them. And she knew people. It was, it was just so awesome. So online campus, we're glad you're a part of our church family and we're excited about what God is going to do. We are kicking off a new series this morning. It's called Like a Good Neighbor. All right, let's just get it out of our system, all right? Like a good neighbor. All right. No more. We're doing this three weeks. I can't do that every week. My brain will blow up. So, yes, uh, it is, I mean, let's just be honest. It's brilliant marketing. Like a good neighbor. Stay friends there. I actually was thinking about it this week. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but... uh, Insurance companies, outside of like people that sell beer, insurance companies might be the best at marketing. Like Geico has the, the gecko, right? They've had that thing for decades. Allstate has the mayhem guy. Also, I got confronted in the foyer after first service, so I'm just gonna rectify that this service. Allstate's slogan is not the mayhem guy, okay? It's you're in good hands. So they, it was an Allstate agent. He wanted me to let you know <laughs> it is not their slogan, it's not the mayhem guy. So I need to get that out of my system. But uh, State Farms is, is brilliant. Like, like a good neighbor, State Farms is there. I mean, what they're trying to communicate with that slogan, which is just the catchiest jingle, is that when you need them, they're going to be there. Like a good neighbor is. Like a good neighbor is there for you whenever you need them or is there to be with you. Like that, that's how State Farm is going to be. And that's, so basically they're saying, this is what a good neighbor looks like. And maybe you've had those kind of neighbors. Maybe right now you have just a great neighbor. Growing up, we, uh, we had one of those neighbors. The house next to us when we lived in Lubbock uh, was these three little old ladies. And they were just the best. Um, and they, they loved, loved, loved my sister. So I have, at this point in time, I had two other siblings. And my sister is closest to me. Her name is Sarah. So I need you to know two things. First, if you've been around Beltway Park at all, you've heard me tell stories about my wife. Her name is Sarah. My sister's name is Sarah. Those are different humans. Okay? Did not marry my sister. This is Texas, okay? Different people entirely. It has been confusing for like, until thankfully my sister Sarah is now married and that was, we were really happy she got married anyway just because you know, it's a celebration. But also now there's just one Sarah Turner and my life was so much easier. So my sister's name is Sarah. My wife's name is Sarah. This is a story about my sister. And uh, my sister Sarah, she has cerebral palsy. And she's just a tremendous human. She has her master's in English. She uh, is just just doing so well and all that God puts in, in front of her. She's married, and, um, but she's, she came from the Turner stock. If there's something you need to know about Turners, we are just insanely competitive. Like when my wife and I first started dating, we played tennis one time, and that was 20 years ago, and we've never played tennis again. That's, that's the competitive that burns inside of us Turners. It's irrational, and so... 
one day, my sister and I were playing hide and go seek. And she's like maybe five and I'm probably eight. And because I'm better at her than everything, I was just dominating her that day. She's not here, so I can tell you that. Just I'm better than her at hide and go seek. So she, she's mad because she keeps losing. Because once again, I'm better than her. And so this day, she's had enough. So I'm about to start counting. So she goes to my mom who's vacuuming. That's another important part of this, another important part of this story. She says, mom, I'm gonna go hide out at Lily and Amelia's house. And mom just says, okay. So Sarah leaves. She goes and hides out at the neighbors. And I finish counting. And I just start looking through the house. I mean, just where could she be? You know, opening doors, looking in closets, under beds. There's not that many places she could hide. I look for 30 minutes and I cannot find her. So I go outside and I think, well, maybe she hid outside. I mean, it's breaking the rules. You don't hide outside, but whatever. So I look outside. She's not there. And then I start like looking in trees. I mean, she has cerebral palsy. There's no way she climbed the tree. I'm looking on the roof. I cannot find her and I am panicking. So like 30, 45 minutes after I finished counting, I went inside and I got my mom and I was like, hey mom, I can't find Sarah. And my mom does not remember to this day telling Sarah that she could go hide out at the neighbors. Because she did what moms do. Moms, you know, you get so inundated with questions that at some point it's white noise. You just decide in the moment, whatever, you don't listen to the question, it's yes or no, depending on how I'm doing. She said yes, whatever. So Sarah went and hid. So me and mom are looking. We look for another 30 minutes. We're now over an hour looking for Sarah. Call my dad. Dad, you gotta come home from work. We lost Sarah. He's like, there's no way. You know, so he comes home. He looks for another 30. We, we are an hour and a half into this. Hide and go seek. We cannot find Sarah. We call the cops. We lost her. The cops come to our house and they start looking. We start knocking on neighbor's doors. We cannot find her for two hours. I have a friend over and we're looking in the dumpster like somebody picked up this five-year-old girl with cerebral palsy and threw her in the trash. We're terrified. Two hours into this ordeal, <laughs> I still feel the rage burning in here. Sarah walks out of Lily and Amelia's house to our house. And if you've ever experienced this, if you've ever like felt like you lost somebody and it was because they did something stupid, it, there's a weird feeling. Like I was so scared she was dead or hurt. And then I saw she wasn't. And then I wanted to kill her. <laughs> like now I'll, I'll put you in the dumpster. <laughs> Sarah spent two hours hanging out with these little old ladies. I mean, they loved her. They were great neighbors. They would take care of her. They would feed her. They'd watch shows. She, they would read together. I mean, they were tremendous, tremendous neighbors. And they loved us really well. And I, I've had the opposite too. When what, the first house that my wife and I lived in, we, um, the people next to us, they, how do I say this? They loved the meth. <laughs> Is that the church way to say it? I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> So one day, with a newborn at home, and my wife is this little tiny petite thing, and this dude next door is tripping out on meth, and he tries to break into our house. So, I mean, like, so violently, he's ripping the door off the hinges, and Sarah has to go find a weapon in case she has to defend herself and our newborn daughter. 
Like I've had good neighbors and I've, I've had just, just really less good neighbors as well. I mean, that's how I would define that. That's the kindest way to talk about somebody trying to murder your wife and newborn daughter. Neighbors matter. The people that, the people that live close to us, those, those people really, really matter. If you ever left town and you're terrified that you left the garage door open, having a neighbor that you can call and go, hey, can you just see if the garage door is open? That's awesome. Or have you ever been in the middle of cooking a recipe and you realize that you forgot this one essential ingredient and if you go to the store to get it and come back, then it's all ruined and you can just go to your neighbor's house and they have it for you? That's great. I mean, having a good neighbor is so awesome. Having a bad neighbor is just as bad as the good is for the good neighbor. A person that leaves their house all trashed, it'll actually decrease your home value. Or if you live in an apartment and the people around you have a dog that barks all the time, that's pretty annoying. The people that live close to us matter. Our, our neighbors matter. And you know what? You're a neighbor. You have neighbors, but you, you also are a neighbor. The, the people who live close to us matter. But hear this. Catch this. The people who live close to us matter. Not, not just the people who are like, their address is one number different than you. Those, those people matter. But the people who live life close to you, those people matter as well. You see, the definition of neighbor is one living or located near another. And the most common way that we use this word is by talking about the people who live in, live like their, their domain is in close proximity to us. But, but I actually believe that if we take this definition literally, there are so many people who are living life close to us. If you think about your coworkers, you will spend more time with your coworkers than you do your own spouse and children. That's living life closely with someone. If you go to the gym all the time, you know, first of all, kudos to you. If you go to the gym all the time, you work out with the same people all the time. You're living life closely with those people. Your actual neighbors, you're living life closely to. If we expand the definition of neighbor to not just include the people who live to our left and live to our right, there are quite a few people that fit into the definition of neighbor if it is those people who live life in close proximity to us. So I want us to do a little exercise. I was thinking about this this week. You don't have to write it down or anything, but in your brain, I want you to keep score. Okay, think about your physical neighbors. The people to your left, the people to your right of your home, your apartment, your dorm. Can you tell me their first and last name? Not just their last name, that's on their door. It doesn't count. First and last name. All right, so you should have two names. Now I want you to think about two coworkers. Can you tell me their kids' names? Maybe you're like some of our staff around here at Beltway, Jake, and you got 17 kids. He's not here either. Pick one. Just see if you can name one of your coworkers' children. So you should have four names then. Two coworkers, two neighbors. And now I want you to think about that person you see at the gym, or maybe you're like me and you like coffee more than you like the gym, that barista. I want you to, can you say anything specific about their life? Not just, not just their name, but something specific about them. 
If I were to guess, for the most part, you should have five names or five things about people. For the most part, few of you got five, which if you did, that's, that's great. Maybe you got four, it's pretty good. I think most people probably got three. And I know I went to public school, but I can tell you that three is a 60%. It's a failing grade. And yet, that is where almost all of us sit. We just don't know that much about the people around us. I'm not just harping on you. My wife and I have been married 16 years next week. We've lived in five different places. We lived in a married student housing at Hardin-Simmons. We lived in an efficiency apartment in three different neighborhoods. And I did this this week. And I could come up with three, maybe four names of people that I've lived close to. And that's my actual neighbors. And one of them is because right now my neighbor is Miss Sam who is over in our kids' ministry. And if you've ever met Miss Sam, she is the most tremendous human and she's my neighbor. Also, this is fun. First service didn't get this. One of my neighbors introduced himself to me after this sermon. <laughs> First service. They came up there like, hey, I'm your neighbor. And I was like, sweet, that's awesome. <laughs> you listened, I'm so happy. <laughs> so, I get it. I, we, I think if we're honest, we don't actually know that much about the people that we do life in close proximity to. See, whenever we start to include everyone that lives life close to us, it is embarrassing how little we know about those people and how little we care. We're perfectly comfortable with the surface level nonsense that we can just have around the water cooler as we're walking down the street. We're, we're good with just keeping everything on the surface. And whenever, we, whenever this is our mindset, whenever we're just fine with, the, with what's going on, fine staying on the surface, we're missing out on a command that is, that is outlined for us in scripture. And even more than that, we're missing out on what God has for us. And even more than that, you're missing out on what God has for the people around you. You see, this command, love your neighbor, is everywhere in Scripture. You can go all the way back to the third book in the Bible in Leviticus, and it says this, you shall not take a vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Then you flip over to the New Testament in the book of Romans, and it says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And I could toss out verse after verse after verse that tells us, hey, you need to love your neighbor. And I think we understand why it's so prevalent in scripture. Because look at the world. I mean, the world is just so ugly right now. You know what it needs? A bunch of people to start loving their neighbor. Hey, the church can be pretty ugly. You know what it needs? A bunch of people to start loving their neighbor. I mean, our world is, is desperate for people to show love and compassion and empathy, sympathy. Our world is desperate for, for people to start loving their neighbor. See, we get this unique opportunity as followers of Jesus. We've received the love of Jesus, and we've got a desperate world that wants love more than anything else, and we can take that love into their world. What a unique and beautiful opportunity we have. Yet, this command to love our neighbor, which permeates the entire Bible, is pretty rare in our life. Why? If you 
that scripture in Romans, it, it talked about other commands. Don't murder, don't steal. Like these are commands, there's lots of commands in the Bible that we grab hold of really easily. And then this command, love your neighbor, which is so prevalent in scripture, which is everywhere. It's explicit, it's, it's, not, it's not like it's murky, it's not like we gotta try to figure out what it means to love your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor. It is this clear command and expectation that is put on followers of Jesus and yet we struggle with it. I mean, if the definition of neighbor is those who are living life close to us, if you're honest with yourself, can you really say that you are loving those people? Because I will be honest. There are some sermons that I get up and preach and I feel like I'm, I'm doing pretty well in this area in my life. There are other ones that you get up and you preach out of weakness. This is one that's a struggle. Like really loving our neighbors. Not just like saying you love them, but like really walking in love. And so the question that we all should be asking ourselves, if this command is so clear in Scripture, then why is it a struggle in our life? And I, I think the answer to that question is found in maybe the most famous neighbor Scripture in the Bible. And it's in Luke 10. So if you will, grab a Bible. We're actually going to read through this here in just a second. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one around you. If you're at our online campus, right there, there's a Bible on the screen. We're going to be in Luke 10. We're going to start in verse 25. This is a passage of scripture that Jesus has this exchange with a lawyer and then he actually ends it by telling maybe the most famous parable in all the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in it, you'll hear some of the same words that we heard in Leviticus and in Romans. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So the hymn is Jesus. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So you have Jesus in this exchange. He's, he's, he's tested by this lawyer, and a lawyer is going to be an educated person. He's going to know what he's talking about. And he asked this question probably because he's heard that Jesus is saying that it is through me that you will be able to have eternal life. And so he wants to see if he can get Jesus to get himself in trouble with his words. And so he goes, hey, Jesus, tell me, how, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus is Jesus. And so he just flips around and he goes, you tell me. And the guy had to like be on his, on his heels and go, well, you gotta love God with all you are. You gotta love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, hey, you're right. Good job. And you had to think the lawyer, this is not how he saw this exchange going. He was trying to get Jesus in trouble. And instead, he asked a question to Jesus. Jesus made him answer his own question. And that's their exchange so far. And so the scripture goes on and it says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? If, you, if, if the way I inherit eternal life is to love God with all I am and love my neighbor, then you tell me who my neighbor is. And I believe that the answer to the question, why are we struggling to love our neighbor, is housed in this question that the lawyer asked Jesus. We don't see it explicitly in scripture. I believe that he's asking this question because he wants to have a narrow definition of neighbor. 
right? I mean, he knows that, that Jesus was not gonna say, it's the only the people who live to your left and right, those are your neighbors. So he obviously knew in asking the question, who is my neighbor, that that definition was gonna be a little more broad. And what he wanted is what we want. We want a narrow definition of who I am expected to love. We want a narrow definition of who I am supposed to care about. We want that to be really narrow. We want them to look like us. Those people that I gotta love, we, we want them to, to think like us. So for me, you know, I'm drawn to the, I'll love the people that are in their mid-30s married with kids. Have you heard the 20-year-old's music lately? 50-year-old's? No, I'll stick in my mid-30s. People who think like me, they may vote like me, act like me. Feels a little uncomfortable in here, doesn't it? And I, I, I understand it. I, it's an uncomfortable thought. And it's never one, we would never say, I only love the people that are like me. I only desire to love the people that are like me. We would never say it. But that doesn't mean that deep inside of who we are, it is not what we believe. Let's do this. Let's take one issue and let's see how fast we can convince ourselves that we don't have to love somebody. Politics. I mean, think, what if, what if loving your neighbor meant that you had to love somebody who voted for Trump in 2016? But how can I love somebody that would vote for somebody like that? I mean, he treated people like utter garbage. I can't love that person. They're endorsing that. What if loving your neighbor meant loving the person who voted for Biden in 2020? I can't love that person. Biden, Biden he's pro-abortion. Look what's happening in our, our world. I can't love that person. I mean, we're quick to find opportunities to exclude people who might be my neighbor. We are fast to find things that I then do not have to love you because of fill in the blank. We are looking for opportunities to homogenize our life so that we only have to love the people who are most similar to me. And I took one topic of dozens that we find opportunities to shy away from love. I didn't talk about different religions I didn't talk about different views of race. I didn't talk about different views of sexuality. I didn't talk about different standards of lifestyle. We're quick to find opportunities to no longer love people. And I know it feels super weird to talk about this in church, but our preference for defining our neighbor is people like us. Jesus finishes this exchange with the lawyer, and I'll let you go read it if you want to. It's, it's uh, Luke 10, 30-37, but he finishes this exchange by telling this parable. He says, all right, there was a man, he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, he's talking to a Jewish audience. They're all going to picture this man as a Jewish person. So this man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets jumped, he gets beat up, and he gets left for dead. Then up walks a priest, a religious man, and he sees him, he ignores him, he walks on the other side of the road, and he leaves. 
Then a Levite comes up, does the same thing. Then a Samaritan walks up. And this, this Samaritan person, they, that, that person should despise this Jewish man. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And so he sees him and doesn't go up and like kick him, doesn't just relish in this man's pain. He goes up and he picks the man up, puts him on his animal, takes him to the inn, pays for him to be taken care of, tells the innkeeper, I'll pay for any of the other expenses that might be needed to keep this man healthy. Jesus looks at the lawyer and he goes, all right, you tell me then, who is the neighbor? And the lawyer goes, well, I mean, it's, it's got to be the last guy. It's the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, that's right. You go and do that. Jesus says, this is what it looks like to be a neighbor. Here's the hard part, though, is what Jesus just did in that moment is I said the definition of neighbor is those who are like living in close proximity to you that you're doing life with. And what Jesus does is he immediately broadens the definition of neighbor to include all of humanity. He says it's anyone that's in need of mercy, which is everyone that's ever lived that's not Jesus. Therefore, the expectation, according to Jesus, is that we have to go and love everyone like that. And when that becomes our definition of neighbor, we're immediately feeling overwhelmed. I can't love everyone like that. Every person I see in the grocery store, everyone in the parking lot, I I can't love everyone like that. And you were right, first of all, because you're not Jesus. But often that feeling of overwhelmed expectation of loving everyone causes us to love no one or to reserve our love just for the people we really care about or just for the people we really want to give it to. And I get that it feels impossible. So here's what my only challenge to you this morning. Actually, I got another one in a second. My first challenge to you this morning is this. Loving your neighbor begins by loving on the people you are closest to. Those who are living lives near you. Loving your neighbor begins by loving those people that are closest to you. Is there an expectation for you to love everyone? Yes, because Jesus did. You're not ever going to be able to do that in a total fulfillment. But there is that expectation. If there's a person that is, if you see injustice or a person that is wounded and in need of help, is, should you step in? Absolutely. But, but let's begin loving our neighbor by just loving those that are closest to us. As we live our day in and day out life, let's love them. That feels a little more attainable. Feels a little more possible. But we still need a first step. So here's my first step for you in loving your neighbor is this. Learn their name. Just learn their name. For the last little while at Beltway, we've talked a lot about how we can bless our neighbor. And because we're Christians, bless is an acronym. B, begin with prayer. L, listen with care. E, eat together. S, serve with love. S, share your story. That's, that's how we've talked about, we've talked about bless as a way that we can take Jesus into our community. And our community, listen, our community needs Jesus. I know that it feels like the Abilene is the buckle of the Bible belt. But conservatively this morning, there are 100,000 people in the big country. 100,000 people in the big country who are not active in any church. Now they might not be active for a variety of reasons. They've been felt wounded by the church. They may have just felt like they didn't need the church anymore. But I'll tell you this. 
There are tens and tens of thousands of people whose eternal destiny at this moment is eternal separation from God and hell. And as those of us who have an eternal destiny that is life and joy and hope and peace, that should light a fire inside of us like nothing else. Our city needs Jesus. So we've talked about bless, talked about how we can let this be the strategy that we go out into our community. It's gonna be difficult to begin to pray for somebody if you don't know their name. Praying for somebody like that that you don't know their name is like, um, like getting a present to somebody and then on the two part, putting buddy. Right? All of a sudden it feels impersonal. It feels like it doesn't matter as much. But when you begin to like ask them their name and you can begin to pray for them by name and then maybe you get radical. You ask like information about their life. Can you pray for their marriage? Are they married? Are they living together? Are they divorced? Are they widowed? Maybe their job? Maybe their kids? And you can begin to pray for them. And I know it can be weird to ask somebody who you've known for a long time what their name is. We, we're creatures, almost all humans are creatures of habit. So you see this person like at the same time all the time. You get home from work, you both go get the mail. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Sure is hot out here, right? That's the conversation we have, it's Texas, so it's either sure is hot out here or, oh, I heard the snowpocalypse is coming again. There's no in between. And we stay on that kind of level. And it can be weird for this person that you've seen for years it can be weird to ask their name. I understand that. I grew up a pastor's kid. Everyone has known me for as long as I can remember. I was a little child and people would walk up to me and they would go, oh, Jeffrey. I'd be like, I don't know you at all. People have known me for as long as I can remember because of my dad. And now I stand up here and I do this. And I'll go in the foyer and I'll greet people and I'll pray up here at the altars. And I constantly have to ask the question, hey, I'm so sorry, but can you tell me your name again? I guarantee you, I've asked it more in the last 15 years than most of you will ask it in your entire life. And you know what's never happened? Not once in the thousands of times I've asked that question. You jerk! How do you not know me? I cannot believe you don't even know my name. No, nobody's ever done that. It would be shocking. Please don't do that if I ask your name because I'm going to do that. <laughs> It'll be real frighten me. But no, everyone's always just great telling you their name. You know why? Because asking their name tells them that they matter enough to you to know their name. Because knowing someone's name communicates value to them. We know that because in Jesus, we See this story in Luke 19 and he's, Jesus is walking with his Jesus posse and they're going through the street and there's this, this short tax collector named Zacchaeus who just wants to see Jesus. But he's short and he's a tax collector so no one's gonna like let him pass through. So he goes up ahead and he climbs up a tree and he's up in this tree as Jesus and his group are walking down the street. 
And they get to this point that Zacchaeus is up in the tree and Jesus looks up and he goes, Zacchaeus, come down. Today I want to spend time with you. You know what? He's the savior of the world. He could have gone, hey, hey, bud, come down here. I want to, I want to be with you. And you know what? It's still Jesus desiring to be with Zacchaeus. Because he said, hey, hey, man, I, I really want to hang out with you for a little while. Can you come down and let's, I mean, it's still Jesus talking to this short little tax collector that nobody liked. And yet Jesus, in that moment, chooses to use Zacchaeus' name because names communicate value. And in doing so, he communicated to Zacchaeus how much he meant to him. Then once you begin that process, you know their name, you're beginning to pray for them. Then you can start to listen to what God's doing in their life or what's happening in their lives, the, the highs of parenting, the, the difficulties in their marriage or what's going on in their job. You can start to listen to them and then you can get radical and you can go out to eat with them or invite them to your house and you can spend time with them then. You can find a way to serve them and you get to share their story of what God is doing in you and what he's done in you. It's awesome. And our community desperately needs the church to rise up and decide that we're going to go take back some ground. Here, you want to know a really freeing thing? This will just give you so much freedom. Loving your neighbor does not mean agreeing with them on everything. Loving your neighbor doesn't mean agreeing with them about anything. See, we love to go, well, I'll love my neighbor unless. You know what you never see in scripture? Hey, love your neighbor except if they're like this. Love your neighbor unless they vote Democrat and then you're released from that expectation. And what's so heartbreaking, what's so befuddling and frustrating and discouraging is that instead of finding opportunities for us to say yes to loving people, we seek out the chance to say no. You don't have to agree with them. There's no expectation of that. You know how I know that? Because Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He didn't agree with them. He didn't agree with what they did. And yet he loved them and was their friend anyway. The woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus talked to her. He forgave her. But then he told her, go and sin no more. There was not a, everything is okay. I agree with what you've been doing. It was still love because that is who Jesus is. Do you imagine what would happen if we in the big country decided that we were going to go into our community and start to love our neighbors? I mean, you look around this room, think about the North Campus and who's online. If each of us went after those five people that we're closest to and we just loved them, you know what would happen in the big country? I don't even mean this, this is not an exaggeratory statement at any level, it would mean revival. We would see thousands and thousands of people come to know Jesus. And now, we don't just love our neighbor because, so that they'll end up knowing Jesus. We don't just love our neighbor because it's commanded in Scripture. We love our neighbor because they're made in the image of God. And we love them because Christ loved them enough to go to the cross for them. We love them in such a way that they see Jesus in us and just want to know why somebody would be that irrationally loving. And you know what happens? We get chances to tell about Jesus. It is a natural overflow of a life spent loving without expectation because people want to know why do you love that way? And the reason we love that way is because we were loved without expectation.
And we would see the big country radically altered if we chose to be people that love like that. So let's just begin by that. Don't feel the expectation of loving every single person you run into. Let's just begin with loving those that are near to us. And let's see what our God does. So go ahead and put your stuff away. I'm going to give us just a moment to respond. You can bow your heads. My, my hope and prayer this morning is that the Lord would just bring to mind those people for you. Those people who are living life closely to you. That he would bring them to mind. And my challenge for you is will you be bold enough, will you be humble enough to reach out to them and just ask their name? Just take a step and begin to pray for them. That person is so worthy of love. Jesus, we thank you for your words to the lawyer. We thank you, God, that you, thank you that you loved us. We never get numb to the reality that you loved us, broken, messed up people, you loved us, and you give us the opportunity to go be loved to a world that desperately needs love. Would you give us the boldness this week to take steps to love those people who are near us? It's in your name we pray. Amen.